Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, David Hook continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And now, here's David. Thank you very much for the uh, time together in worshiping in song. The first song that we sang probably could just uh, be the message this morning. People praising the Lord and uh, and uh, declaring the wonders of Jesus. and Declaring the wonders of God. Uh, there it is, right out of our text this morning. So, uh, we'll just take a moment and just come to the Lord again before we start. We thank you for bringing us together, Father. Assembling us here this morning to, to come and... Uh, Worship you to be around you, to be centered on you, to, to remind ourselves that you are here with us and that we are all part of your family. So we ask that you would help us to just come to understand more of what that means, that, that we have your presence with us this morning, that you are actually dwelling in each of us who have called upon you. And so we pray that we would uh, just respond to that awareness, that presence within us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I think you would all agree that the presence of a person can make a difference to our behavior. So in the hospital, we have some rules. You know, There's one rule particularly that we're not allowed to bring coffee or drinks into the operating room area. So that's forbidden, right? And it's a very... Yeah, but it's kind of a guideline, right? Because when, when, you, when you're really busy and you don't have time to stop and finish your coffee, you sit down, you've got to bring it with you so you can just sip it, you know, whenever you get a second. So sometimes you'll kind of see a few coffee cups here or there around the operating room area. Except when we hear that the health and safety inspector is coming, then they all disappear. <laughs> so the health and safety inspector makes a difference to our behavior. So he's one example of that. Think about uh, maybe some of you have had kids in, in sports, say a hockey team, and you've got your kid out there and he's playing away. But when he sees you in the, uh, in the, in the stands there, all of a sudden the skating's a little faster or the, the skills are a little sharper or there's a little bit more quickness to get to the puck or something like that because they see that you're there and they're trying to make you uh, feel proud of them. And so the presence of a parent in that situation can make a, a difference. One story that my sister who lived in England told us once uh, uh, and it's kind of interesting. Is they they were visiting Scotland. They'd gone up to Scotland for a trip, and they went to a, an Anglican church for worship on uh, on a Sunday morning. I think it was more out in the countryside. Um, it wasn't their obviously usual church. So they because they were traveling, they decided to go there. And when they arrived, they saw a little bit more police presence than they expected. You know, there were some. Cars and officers and some other things, but not sure what that was all about. But they went in and were welcomed into this service and, you know, sat in the seat and picked out of that. But just before the service started, 
In comes Her Majesty to be seated. She was in Scotland that day, and she decided to come to that church. And so she was there, and she went up to the front row. Now, I wonder if the, uh, the people who were leading the service that day, I think they probably knew, but they maybe put a little bit more effort into their preparation. And, you know, the speaker would probably would really like to know that she was coming because she would be, be well more well prepared. And at least my, my sister and brother-in-law certainly had something to talk about about that service. It made a difference, the presence of, the, of royalty in their service. That would be kind of an interesting thing to happen, and I, I like that story. So how does the presence of God affect our lives? Are we aware of his presence? Today we're looking at an account of God's presence being dramatically demonstrated and the effects of that presence on the people who witnessed the events. The account is found in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first uh, 21 verses of that chapter in our talk this morning. The events recorded took place on the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, which takes place or takes place 50 days after Passover. So hence the word Pentecost, which is just a transliteration of the Greek word Pentecosta, which means 50th. So it's the 50th day after Passover. And it's a celebration of the uh, harvest, the start of harvest, I believe the wheat harvest. So I've organized my message into five sections. You'll be glad that there's not 50 sections. There's only five. Uh, Penta being five in Greek. And and I put, tried to put a prominent P word into each of the headings or statements that I've, I've organized this around. Thus, there's... There's these five P's for Pentecost. And I think that these lessons, uh, these statements have some lessons for us uh, today. So the first statement I wanted to put up there is that preparation is vital for participation. Um, so I actually snuck two P words in there. So anyway, we'll just count it as one. So who were the ones that were on display that day? And how did they come to receive the attention that that was given? And what was different about these people? So if you go back in Luke's history of the uh, of the church, you go back into his gospel and Luke records that after the ascension of Jesus, the disciples spent a great deal of their time at the temple praising God. And you could read that in the end of Luke gospel, chapter 24, verse 53. And they were joined by the other believers, and Luke says that they were constantly united in prayer, as we read in Acts chapter 114 last uh, time we were looking at Acts. And they numbered about 120 people and gathered together often in one place. And we see that these followers of Jesus were very committed to Jesus and to his instructions to stay in the city until the Spirit comes and fills you with power, which is Luke's uh, Gospel again, 24, verse 49. So these believers were all together preparing themselves for God's work in their lives, whatever that might be. I don't think they had any real idea just what was coming, but they were expecting it. And they were worshiping, they were praying, they were sharing memories of Jesus, they were exploring the understandings that now were becoming evident to them now that they realized more about what Jesus, you can imagine those two disciples coming back from Emmaus and the starting, Jesus told us this, and then that just continued on. Jesus told us this, and remember when he said this, and, and hey, this really fits what, what he was trying to say. So they were waiting in expectation. 
So where did the events of that day take place? And um, I often imagine they were all in the upper room because uh, it says in the house where they were gathered. But a few years ago, I listened to uh, Ray Vanderland's video series, and I think many of you have had a chance to see that. One of his earlier videos was on this day of Pentecost, and one of his talks deals uh, about uh, the issue of where this took place. And he makes some really interesting comments about the location of the story. In his opinion, the scene takes place on the steps of the temple, going up to the temple. And these are the present-day steps there outside the Temple Mount Wall area. This is a place where groups often gathered and would have... um, Lots of space to be together in one place. And often, apparently, rabbis would stand on the steps and teach their, their assembled people around them, and they would have that time together. So I, this is a quite a, a likely meeting place for people who wanted to be all together. And if you think about the upper room, and you think about houses in that days, you'd really have a tough time getting 120 people <laughs> into that space, probably. So the house that referred to could also be the house of God, which is often used, the same word describes the house of God as the house that you're going to live in. So the house referred to could be the temple. Now, I re- I'd recommend you getting a, uh, a look at Ray Vanderland's uh, video if you haven't seen that. Uh, we, I don't know if we still have a copy. Uh, we might, I'm sure. But I do have a link to a website that has it embedded if you, if you remember to ask me if you're interested. I didn't put it in the notes because it's a third-party website. I don't know what else is there, but I did find it. So if that's the case, that the believers would have gathered together at the temple for morning prayer and would have been all together in one place, there would be opportunity for many others to be around them as well, which fits with the story, which, uh, which we'll get to. So what about ourselves? Are we prepared for God to work in us? Are we spending time in worship, in prayer, in study, in sharing together? And are we expecting God to show up in our lives? And are we prepared to participate in his kingdom? And as we sang in our second song, we're going to build his kingdom. So that fit well, too. So the next uh, um, statement that I make is the presence of God is a powerful experience. Let's just read uh, Acts chapter 2 for the first four verses. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each one. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So no no doubt about it, this was certainly a dramatic event. And it had a powerful effect on all those who experienced it. We were discussing in our Bible study group the last week about the need for the power of God in our lives and in our midst. And I agree that would certainly be important. But Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, specifically prays for them to experience the power of God in their lives. And I'd just like us to read a few verses out of Ephesians to 
see what he says about that. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. It seems to me that the power that Paul is praying for is the ability to know Christ, to know the love of Christ and to know the, the, the fullness of his presence in their lives. It's, it's an interesting thing. It's, it's not a power to uh, go out and do great works that Paul's actually praying for. It's a power to understand the, uh, the, uh, the presence of God in their lives and all that that means. So in, in a sense, both are important. I think the presence and the power work together. In the account there are two signs that are mentioned initially of the Spirit's presence. The first was a loud sound, the sound of a powerful windstorm. Now, people say that a tornado sounds like a freight train or a jet engine. I haven't experienced that. I don't really want to be there. But it's the kind of noise, apparently, that more than just hearing, you feel the noise. You know, you feel it shaking inside you. And I can just imagine that, how that that sound came and filled the house where they were saying, and that would be the temple, if that was the place they were at, that filled the temple with this sound. And maybe that's sort of how they, they perceived it that day in Jerusalem. It is interesting that the sound of the wind is mentioned, but there doesn't seem to be any other features of a damaging windstorm here, right? There was no ruse being blown away, no... Um, things going flying, no cows in the sky like you saw in the movie Twister. There just wasn't that effect of the wind. It was just the audible sound. That's what all the scriptures mention. So it's the sound, which is an interesting demonstration of a presence without, uh, you know, the destructive power maybe. But, but in, in the Hebrew uh, word uh, for wind, it is also the same word that's used to translate breath. And also the same word used to translate spirit. So here the sound of the wind, I think, is an indication of the presence of the spirit of God. We read about some of these things in the, in the Old Testament. Here's a verse from Amos um, that talks about the winds. For the Lord is the one who shaped the mountains, stirs up the winds and reveals his thoughts to mankind. So the, the association of wind and the revelation of God, you could read that the breath stirs up the, the breath, stirs up the spirits, the winds. It's all the same Greek word. So you have to fit it into the context. But here the wind is is associated uh, with that uh, revelation. And in the case of um, uh, Acts 2, the temple was the place of God's presence. Right. And and in um Judaism, the temple, was the representation of God's presence. His presence, therefore, was filling the temple and coming to rest on those who have been with Jesus. And there are other 
interesting passages in the Old Testament where the presence of God fills the temple. I'm thinking about like Isaiah chapter 6, you know, where the smoke of the presence of the Lord filled the temple. So we could be interesting to go, but we don't really have time to do all that. So we'll move on. Here's another verse out of uh, Psalms 104. Um, You make the clouds your chariot. You ride upon the winds of the wind. The winds are your messengers. Flames of fire are your servants. Well, that ties in nicely with the with the next uh, uh, feature of the um, of the indication of the presence of God. These tongues of fire that came and settled on each one of them. So fire is associated with the presence of God, especially when you read some of it, the accounts in the Old Testament. You don't have to think too far into the Old Testament to see that if you just think about the life of Moses and he was in, he was out in the keeping uh, his sheep and then all of a sudden he's noticed this bush that looked to be on fire and then he looked over and it, it was on fire but it wasn't being burnt up so he said well that's kind of interesting I better go see and as he came the Lord spoke to him out of that uh, fire uh, uh, presence there and so Moses was encountering the presence of God represented by fire. So that's a, a, a theme that you can also find in other places in the Old Testament. The Israelites were led by a pillar of fire by night. Ezekiel saw a bright vision of fire with the, someone sitting on the throne. And so this idea of fire being associated with God's presence has got lots of uh, um, support so on, again, on the day of Pentecost, we see these tongues of flame. They're not a destructive power. Nobody was getting burnt up or sizzled or, you know, like the altar was suddenly burnt up by fire. That's another form of power. But they were rather an indication that God was coming to be in them, to be on them, to be part of them. So it's, a, it's an indication of his, of his presence rather than a, and then a real sign of power. But on the day of Pentecost, God's presence was was evident in signs that all could understand to mean God is here. His presence was manifested in a special ability as well. The followers of Jesus began to speak in known languages that were not known to themselves. With this gift of the spirit made it possible for the words of the believers to be understood by many who were drawn to that spectacle. So the third statement uh, ties in with that. So people are drawn by the presence of God. We'll read on in Acts, starting at verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound... A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our, our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God 
in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. So, in his introduction to Acts a few weeks ago, Jim mused about singing the song, I've Been Everywhere. And when he was referring to Paul's travel, well, in this chapter, we would have to say that people in Jerusalem came from everywhere. <laughs> so many of these people would have been converts to Judaism, and they were there to celebrate this Feast of Pentecost. And the list of countries and regions literally covers the known world at the time. If Luke had a National Geographic map of the world, it would not have shown much more outside of the places mentioned. So this is the map that you're seeing up there behind me. It, it shows you how all of those names, they just draw from all over the world. I actually went to a, a site and looked up a map of the, first cent- of the earth in the first century as, uh, as the Romans drew their map. And it's kind of interesting. I didn't put it up because it was, it was a bit too busy, but it was really a big blob of, uh, of land with the, with the Mediterranean come somewhat in the middle and Italy pretty much in the middle and uh, then around that. And there was a little blob up here, which was Great Britain and a few other places, but it's all, all sort of ended. It just <laughs> it didn't look much more than what's on that map right there. And that was the Roman world. To them, that was everywhere. There was not any other place. And so the Everybody from around the world was represented in sort of figuratively at the day of Pentecost. And and they were drawn together to hear what was going on at that time. They came to investigate the loud sound. Then they heard the most remarkable thing, which had them really confused. Galileans speaking in multiple languages. I wonder if they had Galilean accents. I don't know, but... I wonder what that would be like. But they were understandable. They could hear their own language being sent, spoken. So in a sense, you know, what was happening here was the reversal of what happened in the account in Genesis 11. Remember the story where the, the people were building a tower and they were going to be the center of everything, right? This, this tower was going to be it. And all the people were going to be drawn and kept together in this one central place. And the people were building that tower. But God said, no, I'm going to spread you out. And he came and confused the languages. And they were all separated and spread out around the earth because of the languages that separated them. Now those scattered, same scattered people in, in in our story in Acts 2 were being drawn together because the language barrier had now been overcome. And God's message was to be heard by everyone. There's quite a number of comparisons you could make between these two events if you're interested. So I suggest you go back and read the account in Genesis 11 and see how many points of comparison you can make between the two stories. One that I see is that that in Genesis, people were trying to build a structure that would elevate them to God, whereas in Acts, God was building a kingdom that would disperse throughout the world. So in all of this, this explanation of drunkenness seems... Uh, pretty weak, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're speaking a new language, so you're drunk. I, I, <laughs> that would be really helpful. We could just drink a bit and we could talk another language, but have never, well, I've never tried that, but I don't think it works for anybody. I don't think so. I don't think I've ever seen that work. So I don't know. I, I assume then that these people that heard all this 
garbled language being spoken, didn't understand any of them. And uh, they just thought that they were being, uh, you know, intoxicated and just speaking gibberish. So they probably represented Jewish people that were enemies of Jesus and, uh, you know, were, were dead set against whatever's happening here. You know, I don't know who these people were and how they came up with this explanation of drunkenness, but it wasn't a very good explanation. So my next statement is God keeps his promise to his people. So Peter gets up and responds to this accusation of drunkenness and gives the explanation of what really is happening. He notes that the demonstration of the Spirit's presence should not come as a real... <clears throat> excuse me, here I'm going to use Joe's... Joe, I'm not going to speak other languages after I drink this, am I? Mm. Thanks. Um, it shouldn't have come as a surprise or a shock, but rather something that they could have been expecting. Now, these, these disciples had this benefit of rereading the Old Testament. I'm sure they did that in the, in the time between Jesus' resurrection and, or, and now. You know, like they'd just been reading the Old Testament. What, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? And then Peter says, ah, I've got it. I've got the passage where this is predicted. And um, you could read in Acts chapter 2. Oops, I think I wrote put the wrong. <laughs> you know what? I've, I've uh, oh, I went. I've gone backwards. Here we are. Acts chapter two. And Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this isn't what was spoken by the prophet uh, Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here's Peter's explanation of these events to the large number of curious and perplexed people that had gathered together. It's not drunkenness, but it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Peter recalls that this presence was promised in Scripture. The prophet Joel had recorded God's promise to pour out his spirit on all people. The spirits would be present in all kinds of people, men and women, young and old. Irregardless of social status, all of these people would speak the message of God, becoming God's spokesperson people or prophets. Joel's prophecy is part of a promise of restoration after a time of exile and being separated from the place of his presence. So the people of Israel, Joel had been telling them about their return to the place of God's presence, their return to Jerusalem, their end of their exile. And in a sense, he was foretelling the return and the coming of the presence of God. 
It will be a time when God's presence will be evident in great signs and wonders, and he will make himself known. These signs are mentioned, the signs are mentioned are metaphors for the work of God and the great events that he makes possible and are expected before the great and glorious day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a, is a bit of a theme that goes on in the uh, prophets, especially in the minor prophets, and Joel is one of those. And it's another theme worthy of more study and, uh, and what it's, what's actually entails there. But uh, again, we don't have time to really get too far into that. Suffice it to say that the day of the Lord might, re- might refer to any time the Lord dramatically intervenes in human history. And the day of Pentecost would certainly fit that description. So God dramatically revealed himself. But there would yet be a day when God will again intervene and it is to be preceded by these dramatic signs. In the Old Testament, these type of signs were often used as metaphors for the evidence of God's action, his powerful working in the world. So blood and fire and smoke and uh, the sun turning dark and the moon turning to blood. They are uh, explanations or references to God's mighty work in the in the world, in the cosmos and and wherever his uh, presence is evident. Just, just as an aside, if you're interested and, you, and you're awake at midnight tonight and there's not too many clouds, if you look up, the moon will be that blood red tonight. And it's kind of neat that it sort of happens right today. Um, so there's a total lunar eclipse tonight. And if you've seen them, and I'm sure most of you have had, but that, that redness of the moon is, is quite remarkable when it's fully in the shadow of the earth. A few years ago, we had the interesting experience of being able to go to where there was a total solar eclipse. And if you ever get the chance to do that, uh, that it's, it's really spectacular as well to see the sun being darkened and all of a sudden just darkness, but a, a ring around the sun. And then the, that bright light as the sun reemerges is, is just an awesome spectacle. But speaking like of these things, it just reminds us that, that God is is there present and he he is able to organize and control all of these things and they're part of his uh, creation and his ability to make himself known through them is uh, evident to us so the, the yet future aspect of the day of the lord will be a point of distinction between those who have responded in belief to the revelation of god and his presence and those who have rejected it those who came and accepted it and those who said, no, they're just drunk. You know, those are the two, two different groups of people. But in this time before that day of the Lord, everyone who calls on his name can be saved. So the last uh, um, statement I make, there is an important point for us. And I, this is going back into the text a little bit. We've already read this, but... So, Pentecost is usually associated with the birth of the church, and as such, it's a very extraordinary day, and rightly recorded in Luke's history of the church. But there's a sentence in this text that I hadn't really given much consideration to before until I was preparing for this message, and I like to go back and just highlight it. It's part of verse 11, and it says, We hear them declaring the wonders of God. 
And they, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. But the, the message was the wonders of God was, was being declared. To me, this, this could be our challenge from the events of that day. The awareness of the presence of God in their lives made people want to speak about God. They couldn't contain the urge to tell others about him. Perhaps this is as much of a miracle as was the speaking in other languages. You know, it doesn't have to be another language. It could be just our own language. But speaking the wonders of God would be an evidence of God's presence in us. They spoke about the wonders of God. And the word for wonders is, um, sorry, I'll murder the Greek language here, megaleos. And it's the only place in the New Testament that that word, particular word, is used. So it's a little hard to understand maybe what it exactly means. It has the connotation of magnificence and grandeur and beauty. It's sometimes translated as the works of God. But it seems to be more referring to his character than to his activities. So I'm going way out on a limb here, and, and, and I didn't find this in any other commentary or any other book that went, I went to help, so I'm just making this up. So if I'm out on a limb and it breaks off, you just pick me up and uh, dust me off. Please don't, don't, don't really hold me to this. So I have no really knowledge of the Greek language, but when I break this word into its components, it's obviously, you get mega, that one we're familiar with, you know, mega means great, it's big and... Uh, and okay, we got mega, but this word laelos is, is the only other used once other in the Greek test, uh, New Testament. That's in Luke 3, verse 5, where that other part of the word means to be made smooth, the rough places made smooth. You remember when, when Luke is talking about the, the coming of the Messiah. So you could say God is great smooth. <laughs> a great smooth God. But the word also come means the, the made smooth means to be a leveling, a, a, a humility. And so maybe the people were talking about God's great humility in becoming a man and his death on the cross and his life with them. In other words, they were speaking about Jesus, which is what Jesus said the spirit would do when he came. He would bring to the people what Jesus had said. And so here they all were telling about the wonders of God. I can't help but expect, uh, I think that they were talking a lot about Jesus when they were talking about the wonders of God. Perhaps if we became increasingly aware the Spirit is present within us, we may also develop an overwhelming urge to tell other people about the wonders of God's Son, which is exactly the words we sang this morning in our first song. So let's think about the wind again for a moment. There are at least two types of people that are concerned about the wind. There's sailors and cyclists. And I'm not a really a good sailor, so I'm going to put my cycling helmet on here for a moment. And when the roads become bare in the spring, I start thinking about cycling to work. So I check three things that will help me make up my mind whether to take my bicycle to work. I look at the weather and I look at the temperature forecast. And the risk of precipitation. Now, that's usually as far as we go when we check the weather, right? We look at those two things. But the last thing I check is, is the wind speed and direction. Now, that doesn't make a difference when I'm driving to work. It doesn't really care about the wind speed and direction. But when you're going to work, if you have to go into the headwind, you have to add a little bit of time. And if you get a tailwind, oh, it's easy going. Life is a breeze. 
And uh, so the wind makes a big difference, and the effects of the wind are very important. Now, I think as Christians, we have a tendency to forget about the wind a little bit. We go through life as if the Holy Spirit was a nice idea, a nice concept. We tend to forget about that he's actually within us. How would life be different if every moment we were conscious of his presence with us? So, thinking about that, I thought of this book that uh, we had a long time ago. I read it long before I knew any of you. <laughs> it's been around a while. And uh, Practicing His Presence. Vicky really liked this book. And I read it and I said, mm-hmm. <laughs> But then I started thinking about this. And then, while I'm preparing for this talk, two in- other independent sources, when I wasn't even thinking about it, mentioned this book. So, I, thought, I have to mention it. So it's like three, three scores here. So, in, in this book, um, the idea of it is that if we practice God's presence, we can be aware of his presence and in contact with him moment by moment. And it's written, part of this book is written by a fellow named Brother Lawrence, who was a, a monk living in the 17th century. And here's what he said, just one, one little sentence out of the book. I carry... On a habitual, silent, and secret conversation with God that fills me with overwhelming joy. Here he makes reference to an overwhelming joy. It's sort of what the, the Acts believers had, an overwhelming experience that they had to tell people about. We'd want to tell other peoples about this wonder of God if we had this awareness of his presence and we had the wind at our backs. So in summary, we have the preparation of the participants, presence of God, people drawn to God, promise kept by God, and a point for us. I hope these five Ps aid us in practicing his presence. And may we declare the wonders of God to our world as his presence does make a difference in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit who is with us. And we thank you for reminding us of his presence today. And may we be aware of that presence in our lives. And as we go throughout the days ahead, may we be declaring the wonders of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.